Who heard of the Good Samaritan before? Who's heard of the Good Samaritan before? All right. There's a few hands, and I reckon everyone else may have, but they're just not putting their hands up because they're busy finding it in the Bible, so that's great. If you want to flick over there, and I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for this community here. We thank you that we can all gather together as your family, as your people here in your church. And Father, we pray that right now as we read your word, as we engage with it, that you would speak powerfully into all of our lives. You would open our eyes to the work of your spirit and you would help us to see the opportunities for your kingdom to grow, not only in our own lives, but in the community around us as well. And we pray this in your son's powerful name. Amen. All right. The Good Samaritan. It's a story that I think many of us have probably heard. It's a story that gets told over and over again. And what I think often happens to stories like this is they succumb to something which is called the lullaby effect, which is where you hear something over and over again that as time goes on, it starts to lose all its meaning. It starts to lose the profound depth in which it originally had when it was first spoken. I mean, this story is famous because it's so deep and so provocative, but because we hear it over and over again, we sort of think we know what it means, we think we understand it, and we don't really let it speak to us anew because we think we already know. And it kind of acts more like a lullaby. When Jesus was telling this story, he wasn't telling it to be a neat, nice story. He told this story in a really provocative way. And this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was meant to radically change the way his hearers saw the world, saw each other, and saw God at work around them. So as we engage with this story today, as we engage with the teaching of Jesus today, let's try to the best of our ability to put aside all our preconceptions of what this story is about, and let's try and engage with it as if for the first time. Does that sound all right? All right. Let, let's jump into it. So we're going to be uh, reading. So it's Luke 10, and we're going to start at verse 25. I believe it's 1,040 in your Bibles there. So one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him a question. That's going to be a great start to a story. You know it's going to be good when a religious leader gets up to test Jesus. So he gets up to test Jesus, and he asks him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. It's a good question. I think this is the sort of question that we want to be asked at some point in our life. Like, could you imagine you're at work and someone comes up to you and goes, excuse me, you're a Christian, aren't you? And you're like, yeah. And they go, I've got a question for you. And part of you is excited and part of you is terrified. And then they go, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're like, okay, hold up. Oh, okay, you ready? 
Because we've been trained, this is the question. If you want to be asked a question, it is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe as we even think about that question now, you've got a whole bunch of answers in your head. You're like, I know what I would say. I've got my full spiel. I'm ready. I'm re- I could go now. But then we look at what Jesus says. Because I love this. Jesus constantly just defies our expectations. Okay, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We've got our answer, and Jesus goes, out of, for us, seemingly nowhere, what does the law of Moses say? I'm not sure, but I don't think really any of us was going to go there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? He says. And the man answered, he's he's a scholar in this area. I mean, he should know. And he says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. A brilliant answer. Right? Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Amazing beginning to the story. And I just want to quickly clarify something here. I do not believe that Jesus here is advocating for some form of legalism where if you fulfill the law, you will be saved. That's not what Jesus is advocating here. The man is asking about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe as we read the Scriptures, we see a distinction between what we would often call salvation and what Jesus often calls eternal life. In the same way that when Jesus came, the kingdom of God, God's heavenly kingdom broke in on earth, so too did the eternal kind of life in heaven break into our present reality. Which means that we can be saved We can be saved that after we die, we can be with Jesus forever in heaven, but we can sometimes deny Jesus' eternal life offered to us in our present moment. As the kingdom has broken in and is beginning here now, so too is an eternal kind of life, the life that we can live eternally. This man is asking Jesus, how do I get that eternal life? And Jesus says it's found through the obedience to law God's law here now. There is a way we can live today that is an eternal way of living. It is the kind of life that we're going to be enjoying for all eternity. It doesn't begin then. It begins now. See, I believe we can be saved but not live in an eternal kind of way today. The man... Here's this question, and in verse 29, we'll pick back up, and he goes, he wants to justify himself, or he wants to justify his actions, so he asks Jesus a very clever question. It's a very clever question. He says to Jesus, and Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I can imagine the crowds at this moment be like, good question, good question. You stumped him there. You've got him. Because this is the sort of question that's not really meant to receive an answer. It's the sort of question that's more of a distraction. It's, it's more of delaying or off-putting the responsibility of actually fulfilling what Jesus is saying. It's not about actually working out who my neighbor is. In fact, if anything, it's more about working out who is not my neighbor so I don't have to care about them. 
Jesus, I want you to categorize the people in my life into those that are neighbors and those that are not, so I don't have to waste my time with those that are not my neighbors, and I can just focus on those that are my neighbors. Because they're difficult. They're hard. I just want to love these people. He's trying to justify himself and his actions. And I wonder as the disciples heard this man ask that question, and as part of their brain was like, oh, that's a good question. If the other part wasn't ringing back to something Jesus had just told his disciples. I don't know about in your Bibles, but if you flick over a page before, still in chapter 10, you'll find verse 21, where Jesus prays a prayer to his disciples, or with his disciples. And he says, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things, the things of the kingdom, from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for revealing it to the childlike. See, here you have this man who's trying to engage with the things of the kingdom, the things of Jesus' life, and he asks this really clever question, and it sounds clever, but also there is this echo of Jesus that says, these things are hidden from those that think themselves smart, those people that think they can outsmart the kingdom, that think they can outsmart the responsibility that Jesus gives us by asking these clever curveball questions. And if the disciples weren't at one side impressed, but at the other side going, sounds like something Jesus has already told me about this. Not sure. I remember when I was in high school, and if you know me well, I'm not very, I don't like doing work. Like, full stop. Maybe that's the millennial in me. I just don't like work. And I especially didn't like work when I was in school. And I remember I was in geography class once, and we had this, I guess like class work we had to do, and it was all about recycling. And me and my friend, we were so bored, we didn't want to do it, and it's school, right? No one really wants to do the work. And so we're sitting there, and we just didn't want to do it. So we thought, I know what, our teacher is really into recycling. I reckon if we just ask her a few questions, we won't even have to do it. And we're like, it's a good idea, good idea. So we asked her some questions, and she got so excited about our questions, she just told us all these stories about her recycling and the things that she does. And, and this was back in the day where she only used one plastic bag, which now we, we're kind of getting on board with. Back then, I was like, whoa, what? One plastic bag? Anyway, we asked these questions, not because we were actually interested in doing the work. We wanted to get out of doing the work. We wanted to get out of our responsibility to do the work that was told. And when the bell rang and we handed back our completely empty sheets, we walked out feeling great because we had deceived her by sounding excited, but really we were just trying to get rid of our responsibility, right? <laughs> James, I see you. You're smiling. You've done it. Great. Um, and that's what this man's doing. He's trying to ask a question to get rid of his responsibility. So Jesus, to this question, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, with a story. He says, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. It's a bad start to a story. By chance, a priest came along. Ooh, maybe a glimmer of hope enters the story. By chance, a priest walks along. Like, if you have been beat up, robbed, left half dead on the side of the road, the first person you would like to see may be a priest. 
a man of God, a person who serves the living God who always has compassion and love for those in need. And as the message version quite ironically says, it says, luckily the priest came along. But what does the priest do? What does the man of God, maybe in modern language, what does the minister do? What does the pastor do? What does the youth pattern? Too close, too close to home. What does, the, what does the minister do? He sees him and he crosses by on the other side of the road. How far away can I get from this mess of a person? I'm going to go over there. But then a temple assistant or a Levite walked over. I mean, this is the committed church member, the person who's always at church, always helping out, always eager. And he, she, walks past. He looks at the man lying there. Maybe he's going to help. Maybe they're going to help. The priest didn't, but maybe they would. But then they also crossed by and went along on the other side of the road, leaving the man there, half dead, naked, beat up, and alone. But then a despised Samaritan came along. A Samaritan. We've lost our concept of engaging with what this means to the people then. I mean, we're familiar with the idea of a good Samaritan. We even have laws that are good Samaritan laws to protect these sorts of people. But back then, this saying, a good Samaritan, this is like a complete oxymoron. These words should not be together ever in a sentence. When Jesus says that the Samaritan came along, his hearers are probably thinking, yeah, and what did he do? Spit on him? Kick him? Laugh at him? That's what a Samaritan would do. They wouldn't help. Not a Samaritan. But Jesus says the Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he did something the priest and Levite never did. He felt compassion. Going over to him, the Samaritan smoothed his wounds with olive oil and wine. He bandaged them. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now, Jesus finishes the story. He turns back to the man with the smart question and he goes, Which one of these three was the neighbor to the man who was attacked? Which one of the three was his neighbor. And the man, because he could never bring himself to say it was the Samaritan, says, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus says, yes, now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Who is the neighbor? The one who showed him compassion and mercy. See, the man originally asked this question to try and get himself out of responsibility. Who do I not have to love? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus dismantles that question, flips it on his head, and says, that's the wrong question to ask. The question is not, who is your neighbor? The question is, who are you going to be a neighbor to? Who are you going to make your neighbor by showing love? by showing compassion and kindness. 
This man wants to group people into people that he can love and people that he can ignore. And Jesus says that's a totally wrong way of looking at it. As you go out, you make your neighbors by showing them love, compassion, kindness, and mercy. They are your neighbors. It's not who is my neighbor, but who will I be a neighbor to today? And maybe a way of seeing God's answer to that question, we could make it really practical and go, who is right in front of me now? Who is right next to me now? Who is around me in my life? When I wake up tomorrow morning, who am I going to see? How can I be their neighbor? How can I be a neighbor to that person? When I get home from church, or maybe even when we're at morning tea, when we're just after the service, how can I be a neighbor to those around me? When I get home, how can I be a neighbor to my family, to my friends, to my work colleagues, to my schoolmates? How can I be a neighbor there? Not who is my neighbor, but who will I be a neighbor to? This priest, or this minister who walks along, he's probably walking to Jerusalem. He's walking to God's holy city, God's place, the temple, the spiritual place, the place where God is. And I wonder as he's going along, if he's not praying something like, God, help me be a neighbor. Help me be loving. Help me love you and love my neighbor. Help me be a neighbor to those who you want me to be a neighbor to. And as he prays that prayer, he sees the man on the side of the road, and he's like, Lord, help me be a neighbor to other people. You know, because in his mind, there is a place where you are a neighbor, and that is over there, and it happens then. The priest has no concept that God is calling him to be a neighbor, not over there in Jerusalem, not over in a spiritual place, not over at church, but actually here now in front of him. That the test of that man's heart was not going to take place in the temple, it was going to take place on the road, on the path, on the way to somewhere. That God is using even our in-between places for us to be a neighbor. God is calling this priest not to be so preoccupied with the things over there, but to be preoccupied with the things that are in front of him, here and now. God is calling him into the moment. I think for, for me, and I don't think it's too far to say for us as well, when it comes to this idea of following God, we are really preoccupied with a there, then, and them way of thinking. God, what do you want me to do then? When I get there, how can I love them? And this isn't necessarily a bad way of thinking, but the problem is we are so preoccupied with it, we actually lose track of here and now. We lose track of the people that God has actually put around us and in front of us because we're already thinking about the future. We're thinking of there, then, and them. But if you can't, be here now? What makes us think that we're going to be there then? If we're not going to be engaging with the people around us now, why, when we get there, do we think it will be any different? This priest who's preoccupied with getting to Jerusalem, maybe so that he can love people and share God's message of hope with them, if he ignores this, this beat-up man on the side of the road, when he gets to Jerusalem, is he really going to notice the people in need? There's probably going to be somewhere else, a new there, 
a new then and a new them. If we can't be engaging with God here now, living out what it means to be a neighbor to people here and now, I don't think we're going to be able to do it there and then. God is calling us to what is in front of us. So we're we're looking at this idea of sent. That we have been sent by God, as Rocket pointed out and put all this pressure on me to answer the question. (laughs) What does it mean to be sent? That we are sent. Maybe that's a question over this year you've asked yourself. Where where are you sending me? Show me where I am sent. Show me where I should be. Show me what I should do. And maybe without fully thinking it, we slip into the same problem as this religious young man. We ask the wrong question. Maybe at its root, it is the same heart of the question that says, who is my neighbor? When we go, God, where are you sending me? Maybe we're saying, God, I want you to limit parts of my life. Show me where you're sending me and where you're not sending me. What part of my life is where you've sent me? We limit it. Maybe we need to ask a new question, which is to trust that God has already sent us. And instead of asking, God, where will you send me? Instead, we go, God, why did you send me here? To this home, to this church, to this period in human history, to this friend, to this neighbor, to this street, to this community. Why did you send me here? And not, what will I do then? But instead, Lord, what do you want me to do now? How can I be an ambassador for your kingdom now, even on the road as I walk between A to B? How can I be a member of your kingdom and community now? St. Stephen's in 2019, we are sent. We are sent. That's present tense. No, past tense. Is that right, past tense? Yeah, it's past tense. It means it's already happened. We're not waiting for God's sending. We're acknowledging that he's already sent us and that here and now is the place of his sending. Does that mean there's no there then? Does that mean there's no future? No. No, but the future is still future. There may be plans for you. In fact, I know that there are plans for you. And some of them are going to be radical and amazing and wonderful. Actually, all of our plans are going to be those things because they're God's plans for our life. But the future does not negate engaging with the present, what is in front of us. And the present sometimes will not look like what we think it's going to look like. We have a way of categorizing the things of God where they are the really spiritual big things. They are the things that involve maybe God and His church and and the Holy Spirit. They're the big things of Jesus and the kingdom. But sometimes I think Jesus is teaching us that the big things of God and the kingdom, they look like really little things in your life. And sometimes doing the will of God to us doesn't look like what God's will is. We think God's will is to send us off somewhere amazing. And sometimes he's calling us to engage with the present and do the dishes. And wash up. And clean the house. To love the people we live with. Maybe it's to that friend that you've been thinking of. 
Let's invite them out for coffee. Let's pray for them. Let's engage with those around us because we have been sent. And if we are not here and now, we're not going to be here now, there, or then. And when we start to change our thinking around this, when we start to trust that the sending has already happened, that we are sent here, we understand that where we are now, even sitting here right now in this church, is where God intended you to be this morning, that you were sent here for a reason. The Spirit starts to open our eyes to see the opportunities for His kingdom. The opportunities for His kingdom. We'll be the sort of people that walk along the road and instead of going, God, help me love my neighbor there and then, what do you want me to do? We go, God, how can I engage with you here now? How can I be a neighbor? How can I be a kingdom presence? Why did you send me here? If we are praying that sort of way, when we see the person on the side of the road who needs help, we're going to acknowledge them. We're going to notice them because we're going to see that's where God wants me now. That's why I'm walking along this path, because God needed me to be there for that person. God has sent us, each and every one of us, here now to this church, to this community, to this year, to the person next to you, to your family, to your friends, to your parents, to your children. God has sent you here today. I'm going to pray for us to end our time, that we would have eyes to pay attention to why God has sent us here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent each and every one of us. That You know us. You know us intimately. You know our lives and our hearts. You know our circumstances. You know our present struggles and our present joys. Father, you have sent us here. You have sent us into whatever circumstance we face. We have been sent there. And there is a reason for it. Father, I pray as we go into our lives, we would go with the trust and knowledge that we have been sent. And you would give us your eyes to see the reason why you sent us here. Father, help us pay attention to those around us, those in need, that we may bring an opportunity for your kingdom into their lives. Father, help us to ask the question, not where am I sent, but Lord, why am I sent here? Not who is my neighbor, but Lord, how can I be a neighbor today? Father, we pray all these things acknowledging that we need your help for it all. Without you, your love and your power, we are weak and we are pathetic. Father, fill us with your power and your love and your insight that we may so overflow with love we can pass it on and on knowing that your love for us is eternal and it never runs out. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.